Good morning. We'll, we'll, we'll see if we can do a little better than that. Good morning. Yeah, okay. That's, that's, it, it bodes poorly for a preacher, huh? If he gets up to say good morning and the response is that paltry. So uh, I'm just as tired as you are. I probably didn't sleep any more than any of you did, so we're all in this together. Several of you have said, you know, I'm really, really tired, I think, to kind of let me know that if you fall asleep, not to take offense at it, just please understand that that goes both ways, all right? If I fall asleep, just come up and nudge me. Um, I'm very, very thankful to be here. Uh, As Ryan said, I was in the pastoral ministry for a long time, 24 years, actually, and uh, three years ago joined the faculty at Western um, Seminary, where I've been, and uh, in addition to being involved in the seminary, I'm out quite a bit preaching most weekends, having ministry with pastors like your own, and uh, over the course of the last year or so, I've had a chance to get to know Ryan and love him and respect him. And uh, you don't know me, those of you who attend this church here, but, but I've been praying for you for a long time. I've been praying for you before this building belonged to you. I remember Ryan sharing with a group of us that there was a building that was a possibility, and would we pray? And we prayed and prayed and prayed, and I've continued to pray. And so as I drove up yesterday and Brian invited me in the building and I saw how beautiful it is, I, I, I just couldn't help but give praise and thanks to God who heard our prayers and answered in ways that were far greater than... I, this used to be a plumbing place, right, Ryan? If this really wasn't what I expected, to tell you the truth. And so it's a wonderful thing to see what God has done. And I rejoice with you. It's an answer to my prayers uh, as well. And I uh, remember Ryan every Friday. Friday's my day to pray for pastors. And uh, so I remember the Calvary Chapel Church of Crook County and Ryan and uh, think of you often. So I'm glad we can, be get, can get better acquainted. Um, we've got a lot to do today. Um, but as I've told Ryan, I'm glad for this thing to adjust and morph and uh, redefine itself as we go along. So uh, I'm happy for you all along the way, friends, to uh, uh, raise your hands, to interrupt me. This is not a preaching time, okay? I may get to going, but, but, but this is not a preaching time. Don't hesitate to say, hey, hey, would you please explain that further? Or I'm not sure what you mean by those words. Can you unpack them a little bit? And I, I might reserve the right to say something like, you know what, I'm going to get there in 10 minutes. Hang on. Or, or perhaps we'll engage with it right there. What you have is a packet of materials. I think we've just called it How to Study the Bible. And uh, we're going to spend actually a lot of time on just the first couple of pages. And if we don't get to all that's in the back or we move through the back end of it rather quickly, I don't want you to be discouraged because the real heart and soul of the things we do need to talk about today are in the first uh, few pages. So anyway, thankful to be with you and really looking forward to the Lord's Day tomorrow. Would you be so kind as to open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8? Nehemiah. That's in the Old Testament, Ryan. The book of Nehemiah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Right after Ezra. Nehemiah. Oh, yeah. Let's pray together, shall we, friends? 
Our Father, we thank you for the privilege of being together. I rejoice and give praise to your name for what you have done with this congregation and how you've provided for it. I thank you that you have given to these people such a beautiful place, so attractive. And I thank you, O Lord and God, for the testimony that they can have in Prineville and the surrounding areas. Father, we draw near to you today to ask you for help as we think about this business of studying your word. Perhaps many of us, Lord, have misconceptions about what Bible study is and uh, perhaps today can contribute to blowing some of those things away. Father, we recognize that in every sense we are dependent upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we ask that you would grant that he would guide us today and help us, this one who is the teacher of truth. Every one of us here, Father, we are all marked by such profound limitations. What we don't know so far exceeds what we do know. And so may our time together be marked by humility in the sense that we stand in front of a book that is filled with immensities and infinities. On the other hand, Father, grant us the strength to not be so put off by the Bible's bigness that we use that as an excuse to be lazy and not diligent in the name of some kind of spirituality, that rather we want to prove ourselves to be faithful workmen in your word. Guide us, help us, Father. Join us for the totality of this day. We give it to you at its very outset. In Christ's name, amen. Tell me what you know about the book of Nehemiah. Just go ahead. What can you tell me about the book of Nehemiah? Set something of a context. Go ahead. Reformation. What's that? Reformation. Yeah, we, we got in Nehemiah chapter 8, 9, and 10, perhaps the single greatest illustration of Reformation and revival anywhere in all the Bible. The Old Testament has several accounts of Reformations and revivals. This may be the most thorough. But before we get to that, what can you tell me about the first seven chapters? When people think about Nehemiah, what are the first things that jump into their mind? What's that? He's a cupbearer to the king. The king's name is Artaxerxes. The Medeo Persians are ruling the world at this time, so to speak. Nehemiah works for Artaxerxes. What else do we know about Nehemiah? What's that, man? Rebuilding something in Jerusalem. He's rebuilding something in Jerusalem. That's exactly right. And, and what is that that they're rebuilding? The broken down walls of the city of Jerusalem that had been destroyed by the Babylonians some years before. The people of Israel were taken into captivity and after 70 years were brought back in various phases. The temple was rebuilt and, uh, and yet the city continues to be vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy by virtue of the fact that its walls are still lying in rubbles. And word gets to Nehemiah and he becomes a major force under the authority of God himself 
to lead a rebuilding effort. That takes place in the first seven chapters. Most people, when they think of Nehemiah, think about the rebuilding of that wall. 52 days. An amazing thing. Under incredible attack, hostility, opposition. But at the end of the day, dear friends, uh, far more incredible than the rebuilding of the walls, uh, than the rebuilding of the walls, is the reestablishment of covenant faithfulness on the part of those people. The reason why they were taken into captivity to begin with is by virtue of their neglect of their relationship with the Lord God, their involvement in idolatry, their um, repudiation of the Sabbath. And so they're taken into captivity for 70 years. That's not an accident. And so we get to Nehemiah chapter 8, 9, and 10. And Nehemiah, the people recognize there's a far more important work that needs to take place in the rebuilding of the walls. We need to reconsecrate ourselves as the people of God to God. And so in chapters 8, 9, and 10, we see again, as our brother indicated, uh, one of the best illustrations of Reformation and Revival anywhere. In, in chapter 9, we have a prayer of corporate repentance, always indispensable to the experience of revival, renewal, reformation. And then in chapter 10, a rededication ceremony. They re rededicate themselves to obedience in the primary areas where they had disobeyed so egregiously for so long. But all of it begins in chapter 8 with the reestablishment of the authority of the Word of God. There is no such thing as God-produced revival, God-produced renewal, God-produced reformation apart from the reestablishment of the Word of God to its place of ultimate authority among the people. And having said that, let me just read these first eight verses. It really is a magnificent scene. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Now this is amazing. You've got to appreciate what's going on with Ezra at this point. Ezra is told by the people, we're going to have a meeting, we're going to build a platform so everybody can see you and hear you. You bring the word of God to us. It's an amazing thing for a preacher to be told that. You bring the word of God to us. But it's not how it had always been because for the prior 12 years, Ezra had been laboring among the people, bit by bit by bit, a little here, a little there, not a lot of fanfare, not a lot of success. And suddenly, the people then say, you bring the book to us. It represents a huge change among the people of God at this point. So, verse 2, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. Their children there. Isn't that amazing? And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday. From early morning until midday. At least four hours. in the presence of the men and women and all who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. That's how you know Reformation is taking place, friends. That's how you know a revival is at foot. People can't get enough of the Bible. Something happens on Sunday mornings. 
They don't sit there with their watch while the preacher is preaching and say, Apple these. Apple these. Apple these. Super Bowl. They can't get enough. They don't want to leave. God is speaking. God is talking. This is his word. And that's what's going on here. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shammah, Anaiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masaiah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Milkaijah, Hashum, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. As he, as he opened it, all the people stood. They stood out of reverence for the word of God. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hadaiah, Maasiah, Kelida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Pelaiah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. They read the word. They explained the word. They applied the word. That's what Bible study and Bible teaching and preaching is all about. That's all we do, friends. It's just that simple. We read the Bible. We explain the Bible. We apply the Bible. And in light of that, I want to begin this morning just by way of a couple of introductory comments saying this. I am a person who is very much committed to the process of teaching. I'm committed to the process of teaching, of preaching. I say that because it's a different thing to say I'm committed to teaching. It's quite another to be committed to the process. Because at the end of the day, if you've ever made an attempt to do this before, you know that Bible teaching, Bible preaching is very much like the proverbial iceberg with nine-tenths of the iceberg underneath the water. The vast majority of what I do in the privacy of my study, nobody ever sees. So that on the Lord's Day morning, as I stood before my congregation, they heard 40, 45 minutes of something that took about 25 hours to prepare. Now, if my goal was, first and foremost, to get up a sermon, I can do that now in about an hour. But if it is my objective to understand the text so that I now know what it means, so that I can tell you, not my own ideas, but what the text says, that takes me, on an average, about 20 hours a week. And therefore, that's why people who are uniquely devoted to that task in the church need to really not be preoccupied with a whole lot else. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be worthy of double honor, especially those who labor. And the, the idea in the Greek text is those who work to the point of exhaustion in preaching and teaching. Well, this isn't rocket science. If he works to the point of exhaustion in preaching and teaching, that tells you he probably isn't going to be able to do a whole lot else. So I'm committed to the process, and what I'm going to talk to you about today is the process. I'm not going to talk to you about um, 
the dynamic of standing up in front of people and talking. I'm going to talk to you about the process of understanding what the Bible means so that whether I'm talking to a group of five-year-olds or junior high school students or a congregation on a Sunday or graduate students in a theological seminary, the process is the process is the process, and it's far more significant than just what you see when the final product is delivered. For me, friends, Bible study is a love-hate relationship. It is the agony and the ecstasy all at the same time, in the sense that there is no more wonderful joy than discovering something for yourself. It's like what Eric Little says in Chariots of Fire to his sister. He says, when I run, I feel his pleasure. Man, have you had that experience in Bible study? You're reading something, and maybe something you've read a thousand times before, and suddenly it begins to make sense like never before. That experience of exhilaration is just... Man, you wish you could experience that every single day. On the other side of the coin, that work is a very hard, demanding, painstaking work. And what I would labor for you to understand today, friends, whether or not you formally teach the Bible or you just want to be a faithful Christian with the Scriptures in your own devotional life, you need to appreciate that even if a person has been given a gift to teach and preach by the Spirit of God, you need to appreciate that that doesn't mean that exercising that gift is something that comes easy. There are people who think that if you're gifted to preach, man, it's just like a, it's just like a cowboy who pulls out his gun. You can do it at the drop of a hat. It's never, ever been that way for me. So there is a, a process that, that, that is quite laborious. And there are a lot of Christians who don't like to think in those kind of terms because they like to keep it very, very, very spiritual. That somehow relying on the Spirit means I really don't need to understand what a Greek word means. And that's a false piety. It's a false spirituality, as we'll see the Spirit-inspired Word itself tells us to work hard in the text. Okay? Well, that's kind of where we're going. So let's begin first and foremost by talking about what I've called the privilege and the responsibility of Bible study. The privilege and the responsibility of Bible study. There is a tension that I want you to feel, friends. There is a tension between the privilege and responsibility of Bible study. By way of privilege, what you need to appreciate this morning is that there was a day when people like you did not have the Bible in your hands. You realize the idea that every Christian has a Bible is a rather novel thing in the flow of church history. I mean, the last 500 years, maybe. The last 400 years, really. Now we have multiple Bibles. And now we walk into a typical Christian bookstore and uh, hardbound Bibles, softcover Bibles, leather Bibles, genuine cowhide, bonded leather, calfskin, red, blue, green, with a snap, with a zipper, on and on and on and on and on and on it goes, which says something about us, quite frankly. 
But apart from that, you recognize that the fact that every Christian would have a Bible in the sweep of church history is something rather novel. That up until the time of the Protestant Reformation, the Bible was intentionally kept in the language of the clergy, kept in Latin. In fact, as you well know, the church at that time, we now refer to it as the Catholic Church, but it was the only church, the Catholic Church at the time, persecuted and killed people who translated the Bible into the language of the people. Why? Because the Bible is a dangerous book. And if people really get their hands on it and they figure out for themselves what it says, and we don't match up, we're going to be in trouble. And herein, you see, is one of the primary distinctions between historic Catholicism and historic Protestantism. A historic Catholic says the ultimate authority in the church is the magisterium, the ruling body of the church with the Pope being at the head of all of that. There is the final authority for the people of God. And the Protestants come along and say, we're not to neglect church leadership, but at the end of the day, there is an authority that exists over all church leadership. And that authority is the Bible. And of course, the church recognized that attitude represents a major threat to our power. And so when a guy by the name of John Wycliffe translated the Bible into English, the church hunted him and hunted him and hunted him and hunted him. He finally dies. When they finally find his body, they exhume him, put him on a stake, take one of his English translations of the Bible, wrap it around his neck and light him on fire. And then they take his ashes and they pour it in the Thames River in England. So you live in a day of tremendous privilege, friends, that has not been granted to all Christians. You are able to have the voice of God in a book that you hold in your hands, that you can read, that you can study. You can have gifted teachers like your pastor get up and explain it to you on the Lord's day so that we could live the way God wants us to live and most importantly, so that we might know the one person to whom all of the Bible points and that is Jesus Christ. So you live in a day of enormous privilege. But second to that now, it's important that you feel the other side of this tension, and that is, with that privilege comes tremendous responsibility. And unfortunately, you see, what has happened in so many cases is that we've gone to the other extreme, and now we take the Bible for granted. And so we become careless with it. That we reduce Bible study, Bible study to a kind of subjectivism, a relativism. Now, the pro, our Protestant forefathers came on the scene and, and said, every Christian has the right of private interpretation. What they mean by that is this. You don't have to be dependent upon the church hierarchy to figure out the Bible. But it's important that you understand they also said the right of private interpretation does not mean that you have the right to be wrong. And very often what plagues us today, friends, are people who sit around a coffee table in a person's living room. They open up the Bible and they say, well, this is what it means to me. This is what it means to me. This is what God is saying to me. 
and it may have nothing whatsoever to do with what the Spirit himself intended that passage to mean when Paul or David or John or Luke or Moses wrote it. So that with the right of private interpretation comes the sober responsibility of accurate interpretation. Okay? So again, given the fact that we have the Bible now, is a great privilege. It also brings with it an enormous responsibility. We, want, we have to watch out for two extremes. One is the extreme of subjectivism. And, and, and again, it gets kind of expressed like this. I don't care what any scholar says. I don't care what any teacher says. I don't care what any preacher says. Feeling supersedes study. I, I don't want anybody to tell me what a Greek word means. I don't want anybody to ask me what's the subject of this sentence and what's the verb of this sentence. I don't need to look up what the word redemption means. I just want to know what the Spirit wants to say to me. So that the Bible, we think, is something like a paintbrush to paint whatever we want to paint with it. Um, Consequently, Bible study sometimes is viewed as something that's less than spiritual. Sometimes it's kind of carnal. As though hard work and dependence upon the Spirit are mutually exclusive. There's a second concern that, that we need to be mindful of, friends, that often people like us fall prey to, and that is this. I believe that this is what this passage says because... So-and-so, insert name, says that this is what it means. Insert the name of your favorite preacher. Because this is what uh, John MacArthur says it means. Because this is what R.C. Sproul says it means. Because this is what Chuck Smith says it means. Because this is what Dr. Ryrie, on the bottom of his study Bible, says that this is what it means. And what I'm saying to you is while we cannot ignore the scholarship and skill of gifted teachers that God has given to the church, we cannot allow that to be a justification for saying, I myself am not going to work hard in the Bible. I'm not going to be diligent with the Bible. So again, friends, with this great privilege comes great responsibility and, and I believe, and perhaps in a way that's a bit different for you, I'm going to stand before the Lord of the church one day and give an account for how I handled the Bible. And so because of that, you see, I, I, I've got to do my own work. I'm not going to be standing in Charles Ryrie's shoes or John MacArthur's shoes or Chuck Smith's shoes when I meet the Lord Jesus Christ to give an account for how I handled his word. I can't say, well, so-and-so said this. No. No. I've got to be responsible for the scriptures that have been given to me. Okay? You need to appreciate the fact, friends, this is the Word of God. But the moment you misinterpret it, you don't have the Word of God anymore. You only have the Word of God when it's rightly interpreted. You misinterpret it, you do not have the Word of God. Very important, and, 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 and so there is great, great 
responsibility that we have with this word. And it's, it's, it's essential, friends, as we think of the need for reformation in our own time, renewal and revival in our own time. It will not happen apart from the Bible. It was Martin Luther who near the end of his life was asked by someone, to what do you attribute all the effects of the Protestant Reformation? And his response was classic Luther. He was an earthy guy, and he often spoke in very earthy language. But Luther's response was immediate and to the point. He said, while my Philip, referring to Philip Melanchthon, his friend, while my Philip and I drank beer in Amsdorf, the word did it all. The word did it all. And so indispensable to our growth, to our maturity, to the success of this congregation is the extent to which you are faithful to this text. And make sure that when you teach it, when you share it, when you preach it, when you sing it, you are singing what the Bible means, not what you think that it means. Okay? All right. Any questions at that point now before we move on to some other things? Any questions at that point? All right. Yes, Sam. Your opinion explain why this theologian, faithful studying the word, says it says this. This theologian that studies the word says it says this. Why is there that difference? Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a great question, Sam. But it, but it's it's not as easy as it as it sounds. And what I mean by that is this: Let's begin by saying, let's reduce, let, let, let's 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 trim down the question a bit. Let's talk about conservative theologians, okay? Let's talk about Christians, theologians who all believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, because suddenly that circle gets much more narrow. And I would have to say, well, on what issues? On the cardinal issues of the Christian life, there really isn't a whole lot of disagreement. On the cardinal issues of the, the authority of the Bible, the deity of Christ, the deity of the Spirit, the Trinity, uh, the fact that Jesus Christ will come again, the fact that there will be bodily resurrection, there is very little disagreement among people who approach the Bible um, in a manner like we've been talking now. In secondary issues or tertiary issues, are there differences of opinion? Absolutely, positively, there are. Why are there differences of opinion? There may be a multiplicity of reasons. One may be the Bible doesn't give us all the information we'd like to have on any particular subject. There's a lot more I'd like to know about divorce that isn't contained in the Bible. There's a lot more I'd like to know about parenting that isn't contained in the Bible. I, I, it's a misnomer in my view to say that the Bible is the handbook for all of life. If that's the case, the Bible isn't a very good book. Because there are a ton of things that the Bible does not address. And, and so sometimes, Sam, we're looking at an issue that the, God just hasn't been burdened to give us all the information that we might need on a subject. And so people could look at it from different vantage points and arrive at different conclusions. There's a second reason, Sam, and that is there are some people, quite frankly, who are better students and scholars than others. Some people bring more tools to the, 
process than do others. Third, we're human beings marked by fallibility and sin, which means we're all prone to error. So I think all of those kinds of things, and there must be a legion of other things that contribute to the fact that good people who love the scriptures and who are bound to its authority disagree. But I think you'd be hard-pressed to say that such is the case with any really essential, critical issues. I, 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 could you think of one that you would say, this is a huge issue that people disagree on? I mean, people, people, will, people will have differences of opinion on, on Calvinism versus Arminianism. In my mind, that is not a huge issue. People will have difference, differences with regard to the charismatic gifts. Are all the gifts operative today? Many of us would say yes. Some would say no. Um, but are those the issues that are absolutely essential to Christian faith, the gospel, Huh, I don't. I don't think so. Ryan, would you answer the question any differently, brother? No. You sure? I mean, feel free. I would never argue. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have the right to be wrong. That's that's all right. I exercise that right. Often. <laughs> As do I. Yeah, yeah. So, and and that's why. And you know what, Sam? I thank you for asking that question because one of the things that it reminds us of. is that it is possible to simultaneously be a person of conviction and of humility. I think when there's conviction and no humility, that conviction easily can become arrogance. So, for example, I'm a person who believes that baptism should be administered to people who have confessed faith in Christ. I have some very dear, godly, far more godly, far better students than I am in the Bible who are what we would call pedo-baptists. In other words, they apply baptism to infants. Um, I have a strong conviction that believers' baptism is what the Bible teaches. And I'm going to communicate it with conviction but not in a way that disrespects my brothers who, sees, who see that a bit differently. Now, I think they're wrong, and I'm going to look them in the eye and smile at them and say, I think you're wrong. But I, I think what makes that disagreement Christian is when we can do that in a way that there's a humility there. Um, and I think that question, the fact that we can't know all the details about every single little thing and we might see them different, needs to breed within all of us that, that humility. So great question, Sam. Yeah. Okay, let's move on then and just define some terms. Okay, we're going to take a little bit of time here and look at some passages to help unpack this. Huh? When we talk about the language of Bible study, we need to define, friends, a few terms. A few terms, huh? If you're going to be a contractor, I met Kevin today, somewhere, Kevin. You're going to be a contractor, there are certain terms that you need to understand. And if you want to be a contractor, say, oh, no, no, I don't want to bother with that technical terminology. You're not going to be a very good contractor, Okay. Uh, you want to be a mechanic, that's fine, but there are certain things that you need to learn about mechanics. 
some terms you need to understand, be able to define if you're going to be an effective mechanic. You can't say, no, no, I, I don't really want to know what a carburetor does. Um, and it's the same way in Bible study. And so as we think about how do we interpret the Bible so we can figure out what it means by what it says, there are a couple of words, a couple of, couple of terms that are very important. One of those terms, maybe you've heard it mentioned before, is the term hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. In one simple sentence, I don't think this is on your outline, hermeneutics is the science and art of biblical interpretation. The science and art of biblical interpretation. So in the paragraph that you have in front of you, hermeneutics is the setting forth of methodological principles and techniques necessary to interpret the biblical text. The approach to Bible study that governs our methodology, our hermeneutics, is often referred to as the literal, historical, grammatical, contextual approach to the scriptures. That's, that's the methodology that we use, that we feel that the Bible demands of itself. Now, I'm going to pack all of those for you in ways that will make it very, very simple. So let's look at the first one here. huh? What do we mean when we talk about the literal process of hermeneutics? Or uh, it, maybe, maybe the word that's better is the word plain, P-L-A-I-N, plain. What do we mean by this? Well, the Bible is not written in a kind of magical language that can only be unlocked by mysterious methods. Watch out for those books. Do not waste one penny on the, you know, the code that unlocks the meaning of the Bible. You know, secrets to discovering the meaning. Don't waste your money, friends. Don't do that. The Bible is not written in a kind of magical language that can only be unlocked by mysterious methods. To interpret literally means that we seek to explain the sense of the author according to the customary, plain usage of language and words. You know what this means? I've got to figure out what the words mean. What does the word redemption mean? I can't figure out this passage until I know that. Now, you understand, friends, part of what makes this so difficult, and we might not like it, but it, it's the fact we have to live with. In the case of the New Testament, you're talking about a book that was written 2,000 years ago in a language that is now dead. No wonder we have difficulty. The Bible wasn't written in English, believe it or not. It wasn't dropped down out of heaven in 1611, sent to us from King James. Okay? The Bible came to us in Koine Greek in the first century. That kind of Greek, you go to Greek today and you're up a creek in Greek. Because it's not the same. It's a dead language. And so there's going to be difficulties in trying to figure out what the Greek means so that we can put it in English. So you have to realize, friends, you open up your Bible, you're not even dealing with primary sources. And, and, and that's a difficulty. And that's not even to speak of Hebrew and the Old Testament, which, I mean, by any account, I mean, Moses is dated somewhere between 1400 and 1250 B.C. So you're, you're talking about a book that's basically, in, in some instances, maybe as much as 4,000 years old? 
So it's going to be difficult at times. Now, when we talk about the literal sense of the Bible or the plain sense, this is not to say that the Bible does not use figures of speech. Right? So that when Jesus says, I am the door, we're not to think that he has a doorknob where his belly button is. Okay? He's saying something. He's likening himself to a door. Namely, I'm the way in. When Jesus calls you a sheep, he's not thinking that you walk on four legs. And that your fur needs to be removed once a year. He's saying that there is a similarity between you and sheep. And part of what we have to do is figure out what that similarity is. So that the reformers referred to something that was called sensus literalis. It doesn't mean the literal sense, it means the literary sense. So part of what we have to do, we'll talk about this a little bit later, is to figure out what kind of literary genre am I reading? Am I reading a letter? Romans. Am I reading a narrative? 1 Samuel. Am I reading poetry? Psalms. Am I reading apocalyptic? The book of Revelation. Am I reading law, Exodus 20? Because how you interpret each one of those different literary genres has its own unique challenges, you see? And we get into real trouble when we interpret the book of Proverbs like we interpret the book of Romans. For example, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. How many of you have heard that preached and taught as though that's a promise? But it's not a promise. That's a misapplication of the Word of God. And so you know what you do? Then when a kid goes off the rails, you put a lot of really good, godly, exemplary Christian parents under bondage because what you're saying is at the end of the day, you messed up. That's, that's because you took a proverb and you turned it into a promise. Proverbs are not promises. Proverbs are axioms. They're statements of what is true most of the time. Different than a promise. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That's a promise. That's not a proverb. So you see, it becomes essential for us to understand what kind of literary genre are we talking about. You know instinctively, well, I mean, let's suppose Ryan and I walk out to his truck to leave today. And I notice a piece of paper on the ground. I bend over to pick it up. I open it up and on the top it says, Dear Bob. Text, sincerely, John. What have I got there? I've got a letter. No one had to tell you this is a letter. Growing up in this culture, you know that's the form of a letter. You interpret that differently than you interpret a comic book. Differently than you interpret the tax code. Differently than you read a history textbook. Differently than you read a Shakespeare sonnet. Are you following what I'm saying, guys? Yeah? So that if I see a book laying on the ground and the cover it's been ripped off, so I don't know what the name of it is, I open it up and the first line says, Once upon a time, what am I dealing with? I'm dealing with a fairy tale. Do I interpret the fairy tale the same way I interpret the front page of the newspaper? No. <laughs> Maybe for our own sanity we should. <laughs> Yeah, once, a time, once upon a time, there was an election. Uh, 
Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, so so you, you need to realize, friends, that the Bible is filled with all kinds of uh, literary devices. Here's one we're going to come back to maybe in a few moments. Don't be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a figure of speech. Because the Holy Spirit is not a fluid. The Holy Spirit's a person. He's using a metaphor. Because he's comparing the Holy Spirit and the effects of being controlled by the Holy Spirit with wine and what happens to people who are controlled by wine. What happens in that text when you are controlled by wine? Leads to debauchery, the text says. But instead be filled... Not with wine, but with the Holy Spirit. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And certain things will be the consequences of being controlled by the Spirit. We're going to look at that passage with much more care in a few moments. But see, that's a figure of speech. That the Holy Spirit fills us. He's not a fluid. He's not a ghost. He is a person. And we'll talk about that in a moment. All right? You get to the book of Revelation. You read about this thing called a beast. Are we to think about a literal monster there? No. we got those same beasts in the book of Daniel. What are beasts? Beasts are governmental powers that are ruled by dictators who oppress the people of God. That's what a beast is in the Bible. See? Figure of speech. So we've got to keep all those things in mind when we talk about the literal meaning of the Bible. What we're talking about is the sensus literalis, appreciating the literary sense of the Bible. Okay? Secondly now, historical. The historical aspect of interpretation. The Bible was written at particular times in history by particular people facing particular problems in particular cultures. To arrive at the accurate sense of any passage necessitates that we first understand the culture, history, and geography that surrounds its message. Now, friends, here's the point. Bible study seeks to answer two questions. What did it mean then? What does it mean now? And here's where we make all our mistakes. We begin with the second question first. We open up our Bible and say, what does this mean to me now? And what I'm telling you is it can't mean now what it didn't mean then. Which means you've got to spend the bulk of your time figuring out what it meant then. It can't mean now what it didn't mean then. So first and foremost, I have to figure out why was Paul writing to the Romans? What issues was he reckoning with? What were the problems going on, the needs in the church? Okay? So I need to know something about the background of books. Does anybody know, for example, why the fourth gospel has been written? Do you know why the fourth gospel is in your Bible? Why isn't Matthew, Mark, Luke enough? Why do we have the fourth gospel? John tells you. Somebody look up the gospel of John chapter 20, verses 29 and 30. Someone look that up? You've got to ask yourself, before you start reading the gospel of John, why was this written? Before you start reading the book of Philippians, why was this even written? So John tells us, <laughs> John chapter 20, verses 29, 30, 31, right in there. 
Someone with a nice loud voice, would you read it? Good. Someone else? <laughs> Go ahead, nice and loudly, sweetie. What is it, 19 or 29 through what? 29, 30, 31. I'll stop you. Okay. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you have and that believing you have life in his name. Very good, very good. So John is saying, Jesus did a ton of miracles. I've included seven. There's a bunch of other stuff I could have put in here, I left it out. So in the truest sense, this is not a biography. It's biography, but a theological biography. I got an agenda. And John tells you what the agenda is. Many of the signs Jesus did, they're not recorded in this book. These have been recorded so that you would come to understand that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you may have life in His name. You know, friends, there's a reason why you've heard people say over and over and over and over and over again, I got saved reading the Gospel of John. You want to know why? That was the reason why that book was put in the Bible. There's a reason why people don't always get saved reading the book of Leviticus. <laughs> that is the, their purpose. Okay? I'm not saying it doesn't have a saving purpose, but John is very explicit. And so you need to ask yourself, you're going to start reading 1 John? Why is this here? Anybody know the reason for 1 John? Someone please look up 1 John chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, I think. 1 John 5, verses 12 and 13. So whoever has the Son of God has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I have written this to you. Hang on, hang on, hang on. You hear what John has just said? I have written these things to you. Go ahead. I have written this to you who believe in the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. I have written these things to you who believe in the Son of God, so that you would know you have eternal life. He tells us at the end of the book why he's written. Why has he written First John? What, what's he trying to teach? Sure. The assurance of salvation. So when someone comes to me in my office and says to me, Art, I'm really, really struggling to know whether or not I'm truly a Christian. I'm not going to give you some hocus-pocus thing I come with up out of my own mind. I'm going to say, you know what? There was a book in the Bible that was written to answer that very question. First John tells us why he was written. Over against the gospel. The gospel is written to bring people to Christ. First John written to help people understand whether or not they really belong to Jesus or not. That's all part of understanding the historical background to what you're studying. You need to know why that book was written. Why was 1 Timothy written? Someone look up 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 or 15. I don't remember quite which. 1 Timothy chapter 3, 14, 15, something like that. Paul is saying, I hope to come to you soon, but I don't know. 
So I'm writing these things so that you will know, Timothy, pastor of the church at Ephesus, how to conduct yourself in the household of the living God, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Why is First Timothy written? I want to tell you what life ought to be like in the church. How the church ought to function. How the church ought to be led. So, as Calvary Chapel of Crook County develops as a church, and maybe Ryan has already done this, from time to time, First Timothy is a book that you need to go through. Because it tells you what life is supposed to be like in the context of a church. How's the church to be led? What are we to be preoccupied with? What issues are we supposed to be warned about? So those are just a couple of instances, friends. You have to ask yourself, why was this written? Moreover, as you think about history, Paul says things like, if I could speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Do you realize that all of that is that little statement there is rooted in, in what's going on in the Greek mystery religions in Corinth. What in the Sam Hill does he mean when he's talking about a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal? You can't understand 1 Corinthians 13, 1 until you have that background, see? Until you understand what he's getting at. The whole issue of women wearing head coverings. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 9, 11. What in the world is that all about? Boy, until you understand something about the culture in Corinth, you can't understand that. Let me, let me give you another one that, that falls under this area of history. When I was a little boy growing up in church, our pastor, who was a wonderful man, okay, so, so no one's calling into question any motivation. But often when he would refer to John chapter 4, Jesus and the Samaritan woman, he would always say, Jesus went all the way out of his way, way out of his way to bring the gospel to the Samaritan woman. And it sounds good, doesn't it? But he never, ever looked at a map of the Bible. Because here's Galilee. Here's Judea in the south, Galilee in the north. We're told Jesus is here. Samaria's right in the middle. Here's the Jordan River. Galilee in the north. John says Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why is that a big deal? Typically, a Jew would do everything to avoid Samaria. So, he would cross the Jordan River once, go north, cross the Jordan River a second time to get to Galilee. Typical Jewish procedure. Jesus didn't go way out of his way. The issue is not, he went 20 miles further than he had to go. No. The issue is, in going to that woman, he shattered a racial barrier. He's going to people that the Jews despise. He shatters a gender barrier. He speaks to a woman in public, which a rabbi would never do. And he breaks a social barrier. He's a rabbi talking to a woman who for all intents and purposes is a harlot. But see, you missed the point by saying, he went way out of his way. No, no, no. The point is not that he extended his trip. No, the point is he overcomes some incredible barriers for the sake of bringing the gospel to that woman and a whole group of people who lived there with her in the town of Sychar. 
That, that's a part of what you need. That's a part of understanding this historical aspect of Bible study. I got, I, you know, if, if, if geographical places are mentioned, I, I need to know what's going on. That may have significance on how I interpret this. And if you don't have a basic understanding of the, of the geography there, then you'll miss the fact that what's going on is Jesus is doing amazing things, reaching out to someone outside of his people group. Extending love to a harlot. Elevating women to a status they had never known before. So you've got places mentioned in the passage that you're studying. Pull out a map and figure out where they are. What's the significance of what's going on here? Okay? Alright, so that's something of the historical aspect. So literal, historical... The next one, <clears throat> grammatical, which is one of my favorites, but that's because I'm weird. Let me, let me uh, read this to you and uh, unpack it just a little bit, and then, and then we'll take a break. Ryan, huh? Okay, grammatical. The Bible is written in human language. No, no mystery language, no angel language, nothing weird, nothing secret. The Bible is written in human language. And as such can only be rightly understood when the meaning of all the words are known, which includes their definitions, tenses, relationships to one another in sentences and paragraphs. Okay? Who knows what the word redemption means? Want to take a stab at it? What's that? To be bought back, uh, to redeem something. It's, it's a business transaction. It speaks of a payment being made so that someone might be released or free on the payment of that ransom price. Redemption. How about uh, propitiation? What's that? No, that's substitution. Propitiation is something else. In fact, sad to say, many of your contemporary English translations... Take the word propitiation out of the Bible, and that is tremendously sad. What does that word mean? Mercy sheet. To be a mediator. To be a mediator. No. <laughs> by the way, by the way, all of these are biblical concepts. Huh? To be a mediator, certainly it's a concept taught in the Bible. Substitution, or in the place of, somebody said. That's certainly a biblical concept. That's not what the word propitiation means. To die in place of? No, that's substitution. A concept also taught in the Bible. Yes? Mercy seat? No, not really. God is propitiated by what takes place at the mercy seat. But what is propitiation? Anybody? Any last? Turn away the wrath of God. To turn away the wrath of God. God is angry. God is angry. God is angry. He is righteously angry against sin. 1 John tells us, chapter 2, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. It is Jesus who turns away the holy, righteous anger of God. So when we talk... Yeah, sin that be connected with mercy, God's mercy. Jesus was God's mercy. I think they're using the mercy seat because of the Septuagint or you know, the, the, 
when they translate the Old Testament, they use the same Greek word as propitiation in the New so Sam's referring to the Septuagint? I don't know, but I, you know, I think that point's been made. Okay. Before. Okay. Yeah, I mean, mercy, mercy is God's um, compassion toward us who are fallen that compels Him to act in our behalf. I heard that He did not give us that which we deserve. Jesus would be that person that would stop the wrath of God getting what we use or we didn't get. You see, all of these things are related, huh? but they all have their own unique meaning. Propitiation is really the concept of I am satisfying God's wrath. Christ has satisfied God's wrath. Um, his wrath has been turned away. And it's sad then, friends, some of our English translations take that out of the Bible, replace it with something else, and you, you have no idea that what's being talked about in that word ilasmos in Greek is the turning away of the wrath of God. And therefore, we have Christians in our own churches who the moment you mention the wrath of God are completely scandalized because they have a vision of God as a teddy bear. What makes the cross so magnificent is not just that that's where God's love was dispensed, but it's where His holy anger was satisfied, turned away. What does the word justification mean? To be declared righteous. To be declared righteous. To, to be declared righteous. It's a judicial term. So, I say that to say, friends, when we talk about this grammatical component... As we think about Bible study, we've got to understand what the basic words mean. We've got to understand the tenses of the verbs. When Jesus says on the cross, Tetelestai, it is finished. He uses what we call the perfect tense. There's a reason why. Because in the Greek, the perfect tense means action that has happened in the past that has ongoing, uninterruptible action. It's finished, and it will for all time be finished. Husbands, love your wives. Present tense. In Greek, the present tense speaks of ongoing, durative action. Husbands, keep on loving your wives just as Christ loved, aorist tense, the church. Well, doesn't Jesus keep on loving the church? Yes. Why does Paul use the heiress then? Why doesn't he say, husband, keep loving your wives just as Jesus keeps loving the church? Yes, yeah, in other words, yeah, that's exactly right. In other words, all of the love of God, Paul says, can be summarized into one snapshot. The ultimate expression of the love of God for his church is that moment of Jesus' death on the cross. That becomes the paradigm for how a husband is to love his wife every moment of every day. The only way you figure that out is knowing something by the verb tenses there. Husbands, keep on loving your wives just as Christ loved the church. Okay? Um, 
Let, let's, let's, take a, let's take a break. I've got one or two more that I'd like to show you on this that are really important, okay?